Great. Hello and welcome to the Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine statewide campus system. This is our monthly med ed transformation podcast. I'm so excited to be uh, joined by my friend and colleague, Amy Howard. Um, Had the pleasure of finding her, uh, wow, probably almost two years ago now. And we've talked a lot of uh, DEI, and uh, she was with us last month for the e-forum where we talked about healthcare disparities. And today we're just going to chat about um, DEI and where it's going and where she got started um, down this road. So Amy, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely look forward to the day that I get to meet you and the awesome uh, Michigan State community in person because right before COVID, I was slated to come in person and then and then life sort of devolved. Right. So I'm excited to someday meet your campus and also meet you face to face. Yes. <laughs> However, we talk, we talk so much. I feel like, you know, I already know you. So the day that we actually Absolutely. meet, I don't even think it'll be like this big... <laughs> It'll just be a lovely, a lovely reunion. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. um, Yeah. And I'm stoked to be part of this community. And thank you again for bringing me into this. And uh, for those of you who may not have um, heard me speak with your community before, you know, I'm not a a medical practitioner. um, And I do, uh, I am a diversity, equity and inclusion specialist and educator and trainer. um, But I am deep excuse me, deeply impassioned by um, trying to, to help those and guide those along with tools and strategies to, to make our world better for everybody. And so um, I'm really thankful to be part of this community and having this conversation with you, Deb. So Amy, was there something that sparked your interest in this area or what led you down this road to be such an advocate for DEI. And let, let me preface this. I think everybody should be an advocate for DEI, Yeah, but th- there's, there's something about you and the way that you talk about it and, and your passion. So where, where does it come from? I think, well, I mean, I am someone who I guess identifies as historically excluded or underrepresented. Um, I come from a biracial family where I grew up Lily White and my brother grew up very black and we went through the same schools, had the same mom, grew up in the same household and had distinctly different experiences, which definitely wasn't something I understood in the moment, but it was something that in my adult years were really like compact and started to see what my opportunities were. Um, but I think that honestly, like my, my career, I mean, I've got the resume of like a 90 year old. So like I'm a jack of all trades and master of none. My my friends love to say, and um, I'd like to say I'm a master of some, but maybe not all, Uh, but that uh, it was actually through discrimination experiences based off of my identity. Um, and, And at some points in my career that, that I wasn't even really clear on, like, so there were definitely times in my career where, where I wasn't focused 110% on DEI, um, where I was doing some other functional role in higher education. So for about nine and a half years, I worked in uh, residential education um, and where 
I was on committees that were doing DEI and I was on different coalitions or, or um, work task forces. Um, I, it wasn't my 100 you know, percent career trajectory. And I was getting discriminated against because of my gender. And at that time, I wasn't even sure what my gender was. And not that, that I was sharing that expressively with my words and stuff. But, you know, if, if we were to go through like a little, uh, you know, slideshow of images of my visual expression throughout that two period time, you would see a very distinctly uh, different shift. Um, at different at different periods and that's because I was working through my own gender and so like I identify as non-binary she they pronouns in my opinion for me pronouns are the least of my problem but those are some of the biggest problems for other individuals as I've come to know through my own journey of learning and my own gender journey um, but I think that it was honestly that in my career I kept hitting these pretty serious roadblocks and they weren't ones I could determine they weren't ones I was looking for because I was looking at the road thinking well my pal over here is succeeding in this way and so I should try to keep up and I'm going to do xyz and you know this is these are the things you do you go to back to school you get your master's degree um, you gain more experience you take on new roles and opportunities and then I would not be succeeding at the same rate as maybe some of my male counterparts, maybe some of my, you know, other dominant identity counterparts. And I didn't understand it. <clears throat> and so then the more you ask questions, and I'm sure for any of those of you listening, or even you, Deb, when you lean and you start asking questions, especially as a femme presenting person, um, your questions aren't always met with answers. They're often sometimes met with a moment of wonder if you're being indignant or if you're being problematic or if you're starting drama and all this stuff. And then I started getting hit with that roadblock and I was like, wait, 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 hold on. What is happening here? Like, why, what, why am I facing this? Like, why am, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm, I, I, I was told, you know, like they told me A plus B equals C. And so why isn't, why isn't that happening? And so the more that those, those pressure points for me started to get pushed in my career, the more I actually started to focus more on those areas and not just for myself. I mean, that was how it started because I was using my own experience in real time being like, hold, hold the phone, like something weird's happening here. But obviously the more that I did that, the more that it revealed that obviously these, these discre discrepancies and disparities are bigger than just me. And they're bigger than just my career. You know, then I started seeing it in, in the health sector, like when I was trying to find a doctor or find a, trying to find a mental health, uh, you know, practitioner, whether that be a therapist or a psychiatrist, who could even acknowledge the differences in my experiences and the different needs that I had, um, or you know, having a period in my life where I didn't have health insurance, and so then that that also put in a whole other layer of obstacles in trying to seek support, whether it be health related or so on and so forth. And so I think that all of those things just became so compounding um, that actually in, I mean, not too long ago, but seems like forever ago, uh, in 2016, I, I took a step away from my career and I worked part-time. I did just retail. I made <clears throat> organic dog treats while I tried to imagine what my, my actual career should be. And then I went for it. And that was working directly in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's what I've been doing ever since um, in some way, shape, or form, even though my current 
on paper career is a little bit different. The reason why I was hired was because they needed someone with a lens to think bigger and broadly about diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically in the, <clears throat> the music industry. So yeah, it's kind of like this multifaceted thing, but I'm constantly affirmed that I'm where I'm supposed to be and doing the learning and unlearning that I'm supposed to be doing so that I can use my, my privilege and my power to help others along to create a, a more equitable world. Your, your trajectory through this, um, every time I, I hear your story just uh, amazes me that you have overcome so many um, obstacles and, and barriers. And we, we teach our, our kids starting at a young age, you know, even through adulthood, that you have to be a self-advocate and promote yourself. But even in some of the scenarios that you gave of you being a self-advocate and asking those questions that you were even faced with more barriers and more obstacles to overcome when you brought something up. And so we, we then start talking about this bystander response training, like when somebody of privilege that doesn't experience, um, you know, uh, the, the same barriers for them to speak up. Talk about kind of that roadmap and, and like how that bystander response um, is so important and helpful uh, for yeah. the underrepresented uh, persons of our of our culture. You know, it, it, I, I will start by acknowledging that that's all easier said than done. I think that, you know, it's easy for us to all conceive ourselves as bystanders who want to like step in. Um, but in that moment, like, it's not as easy as it feels and seems, but it's vital, you know, like, it's, it's this point where we have to like, kind of step into this mo mode of fearlessness, and being willing to be the advocate and step in the way, um, and or help that person advocate for themselves and support them in that, like, we want to take everybody's voice away, we want to, you know, we want to be allies at arms, not necessarily speaking or, you know, being a martyr, or some sort of savior. But, you know, as a young person, like, like I said, growing up in a biracial household, there were, there were very distinctive moments in my life where I saw racism being faced by my brother and I did nothing and I did nothing because I didn't know what to do. And I, and I was paralyzed and I was a kid, but like, also like, you know, I also punched a kid in the mouth in third grade for calling my friend fat. So surely I could have like stood up a little bit more right like it's not that I was not within my realm of able to do that it was just like this moment of I didn't understand it right like I had no lived muscle memory of this sort of discrimination and I didn't know how to how to deal with it I did grow up a slightly tubby kid so being called fat hurt my feelings as much as seeing someone else called being called fat but when my brother's being faced with someone calling him the n-word I froze, you know, and I think that that's what a lot of people get stuck in is this moment of freeze. And it, it doesn't matter what kind of, it could be someone um, using flippant and hate-based language. Um, it could be, you know, someone's practices within the workforce or in within um, a work culture that's truly not supportive. Um, it could be sexual harassment. It, you know, there, there are so many different ways in which we experience these different um, disparities, discriminations, prejudices, and inequities daily. Um, but what are we doing to, to mitigate that? And like, you know, I, whenever I do trainings or whenever I have conversations with individuals, you know, I kind of, I kind of rely on 
y'all to have the integrity that I believe you have. Right. You know, and it's not necessarily always in those moments being like maybe the active bystander, although there are many instances that that's called for, um, that, that it's what you're doing when nobody's looking kind of stuff. Like my grandmother always said, like, integrity doesn't lie with with what you're performing in front of people it's what you do when nobody's looking that matters most and and I think that that holds true right like maybe you're not out and about um being anti-black or homophobic or transphobic but when you're at your dinner table during the holidays and you know great uncle Charles says something off kilter and you sit in silence and then you know other uncle Phil says, you know, something similar. And then that, that moment is complicitly and tacitly approved of. Right. And then the, those sentiments then seep into the other folks at that dinner table. It's not just, you know, great uncle Charles and uncle Phil, it's, it's, it's everybody now. And so how do we have these moments where we can stand up and say something and maybe you don't say something at the dinner table or in my case I would but that's who I am so like I was born and bred that way in a way um, and have gained voice over time but that that voice came with unlearning a lot of my own biases and unpacking things of my own because I was I am and was also complicit in those moments which someone should have stepped in right like where someone I I'm sure that I've said hate-based stuff. I'm sure that I've, I've used homophobic or transphobic remarks in my past. Like I, I guarantee it because I was a growing human being who said and did things that I've now learned are, are not right. You know, like that we all have those moments. Um, but that like through these trainings, once you know these things, you can't unlearn them. So what are you doing about it? Like your action is what really is tantamount at the end of the day. And that bystander really does change things. And so I'll, I'll give a great example of the last couple of years. Um, <clears throat> I've also decided recently to shift my career, not change it entirely, but just shift it for, I don't know, for the foreseeable future um, where I'm still focused on DEI, but my day-to-day -day functional work is in the music industry. And I'm still, I'm still going through, like I live in a new area. So one of the first things I did about living in that area was understanding demographics, um, was understanding who, um, not who is the most marginal in the area, but <clears throat> what are some of the more um, tense pulse checks on the area? Like where are some of those pressure points of disparities that are a little bit more um, present than others? You know, I'm, I'm looking at the stewards of the land. So who does this land belong to? Like who are the indigenous peoples who um, are, you know, are the, the, the stewards and the protectors of this land? And that's important for me to know. How am I involving myself in my community? And, and all of that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm like out marching in the streets or, um, you know, flying my pr pride flag parade everywhere I go or, um, that I'm getting in altercations with white, white supremacists every day, but it empowers me, right? It gives me knowledge. It gives me tools. It gives me opportunities that should I be faced with a situation um, or should I be in, immersed in a situation that I'm able to have tools to help support those um, who might need might need me in that moment. And, and that's not always a beautiful process right it's not always clean cut it's not always you know with students whenever I work with students 
they're a little bit easier because they're in a mode of learning. So when they say something like that's so gay and I look at them and I'm like, you know, that's some homophobic language. I, you go to college, I'm sure you have a better vocabulary than that. Like, let's try a different word. You know, they're going to respond to that a little bit cleaner than if I were to say that to someone of my same age or, or someone older within my career field. So you have to think through like what your opportunities are and how you're putting yourself in a position where you're able to advocate alongside those who are underrepresented or historically excluded, as well as like being empowered with knowledge and confidence in that. And that's, again, all easier said than done, because there are ways that, again, like what I was saying with my career and the roadblocks that you have to overcome. And I know I'm not special in that. Like, I think any person who is, uh, you know, femme expressing, any person who's LGBTQIA, any person of color, you know, any person who's experiencing, um, you know, dis- disability in their lifetime, um, et cetera, et cetera. Like all of these individuals have experienced immense roadblocks in a host of different ways and still do. Um, throughout their own careers or their own worlds that they're navigating. And so like having those tools to be empowered to, to stand up alongside, I don't know, I think is, is what we're missing in some respects, right? Like there's a unification that we're missing about an understanding of humanity, which is clear in the way that our, our society kind of does this binary breakup. Um, but I think that following the George Floyd murder and then subsequent other Black Americans being murdered, um, we saw people come together, right? We're seeing more people standing up and more bystanders who are, are intervening um, in a way that's, that's, that's vital, that's really changing the course of our, our society. Yeah, so a, a, when you were talking, a couple of things came to mind. So our faculty and our healthcare providers are kind of faced with like two different branches of DEI that they have to be aware of. So in terms of faculty, it's the, um, you know, treating the, the students, you know, fairly uh, equitable, that they're being inclusive of everybody. And then there's the other arm of, of patient care. I'm going to talk about patient care um, for a minute. So we we have a big project on patient safety um, in relations to healthcare disparities and trying to identify what patients in our community that we're serving are most marginalized. And so we're doing a lot of tracking of, you know, falls related to, well, we know falls related to age, but is there any other um, disparity that we're seeing a lot more falls in African-Americans or Asians or females versus males or, or whatnot. Yeah. In the faculty realm, um, I'm doing a lot of research right now looking into uh, dismissal rates of residents or learners in regards to um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, who's being marginalized, who's being dismissed at higher rates than um, other persons. Um, and so when we, when we talk to faculty about either, you know, branch that we're dealing with on a daily basis, a couple questions have come to mind. They're like, you know, and, and I think you heard this last time you were with me where they're like, I treat everyone the same. Like there's no difference. And, and we talked then about, you know, what, what that means and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. What? How does that come across? 
in this DEI space when people so, are, are so I treat everyone the same. So my grandmother, Grammy Pat, she's still alive, bless her heart. Uh, she has the best phrases in the history of ever. And what she would say in this situation is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, and it's true. Like that phrase, like I treat everybody the same. Um, I don't treat anybody differently. Like that's, I, I get in the heart of hearts of things that that's well-meaning. But in the DEI sector, <clears throat> it, it, it can't be that, right? Like you, it can't be that you're treating everybody the same. And, and that's for a host of reasons. The first being, you know, some of the things that you and I have talked about, Deb, is like, who are you even seeing, right? Like how many of, you know, I, I think, I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head. And while I think white Michiganders and black Michiganders are very close in statistics in terms of, of um, uninsured, uh, that there's still a higher number of those who are um, black or African-American or people of color who are uninsured, but they're also a smaller population than um, the population of, of white Americans in Michigan, right? That like, even at that point, like the access to healthcare isn't, isn't always afforded. So by the time you get a patient to say you're treating them all the same is to say that their journey to you has been all the same, which isn't true either. And then to treat everybody the same, you know, there was something one of my students had said once, and it said something like, it's not the golden rule, it's the platinum rule. And I was like, well, what's the difference? And they said, well, the difference is the golden rule is that you treat everybody you treat everybody um, equally, like you treat everybody the same. And that the platinum rule is that you treat everybody the way that they want to be treated. And I thought to myself, right, because the way you want to be treated isn't the same way that I want to be treated. And I think that that completely applies within the medical care facility, right? Like that one, my issues when I sit before you are not going to be the same, even if I'm presenting similar symptoms to someone else, right? Um, two, my biases as a doctor, as a nurse, as a, a practitioner, as a, you know, as a receptionist, whoever I am facing the patient, my biases don't get checked just because this person is here, right? And that we carry unconscious and hidden biases every day and everything we do. And that's why I talk about like the unlearning piece is like, we have to really accept that there are these things that happen in the world, even when our good intentions don't align with that right like you can still be you can still be racist and still believe that you treat everybody the same I can still work in diversity equity and inclusion and understand that as a white person moving through North America that I carry an immense amount of history of anti-blackness an immense amount of history of heteronormative traditions and behaviors I carry a history of, of what my body is is supposed to do just simply because I was designated female at birth for having a vagina. You know, like there is a history that we all carry, which also informs our biases every single day, um, which informs the way that we communicate and work with other people. And, and even though I consciously every day work toward the, like breaking down anti-blackness for myself, that doesn't mean I'm exempt from it. You know, like I, I'm queer and that doesn't mean I've never been homophobic or transphobic or will never be. Right. And so I think in that realm is like, 
I get the well-meaning behind it, but it, it's like a lot of these overarching statements is when you make these overarching statements, they become diluted and the disparities are, are missed or ignored. And so sure, if you treat all of your patients the same and you think that, you know, well, I have a 80% rating among my patients, but your patients are 90% white. Um, what about the, the patients that aren't rating higher and what are they saying? And is it because of these other hidden biases? You know, like I, I am not a medical practitioner and I know that in the United States, based off the statistics, as well as anecdotal stories and qualitative and quantitative studies that black women are some of the most marginalized individuals in the medical care field, right? And so even if we started to pit and parcel between like gender or race or sex um, and, and beyond, that doesn't, it, it doesn't remove the fact that women who are black or of color, that they are immediately, the minute they walk into a facility that is a medical facility, have already hit a roadblock. Um, that's a problem, right? And so again, like to say, like you treat everybody the same, I think it's well-meaning, but it, it's not about treating everybody the same. It's about understanding that everybody has these unique aspects to their medical and their personal and social identities um, that, that affect their health too. And in those moments, you know, I think you and I, Deb, when we were just uh, catching up about this this conversation, you know, I, I said, if, you know, a black woman who was um, considered uh, overweight was to be in a, you know, in a, a medical office and had, you know, X, Y, Z symptoms, the first, what would be the first possible diagnosis that would be given to that woman? Diabetes. Diabetes. Right. And it's like, I have no medical training. I am white as the day is long. And I know that to be true. And that's not a fair, that's not fair, right? Like that's not fair to anybody. And that that's only but one sliver of a disparity that individuals face, right? Like we could also go into infant mortality rate as well as, um, as well as patient care related to pregnant black women. And a lot of the similar things come up, you know, like instead of assuming that they might be pregnant, then it's assumed that they have diabetes and then they find out they're pregnant. And it's just this, this whole um, onslaught of issues that then face this community and become normalized. So while you think you're treating everybody the same, you're really just replicating uh, racist tradition. You're replicating homophobic tradition and, and you're, you're, replicating that in the way of medical practice because those same elements would not be faced to someone who might be white femme and overweight sitting before you i've never as someone who has been in and out of of whatever is considered you know medically overweight um, my whole life i've never once been tested for diabetes my brother who has been also in and out of what would be considered medically overweight his whole life has been tested for diabetes almost every time he's gone to the doctor. Like these are differences and, and in care, in attention, in like, in bias, right? Like, like there's a whole, it's, it's a perfect storm of that exact sentiment not actually being fulfilled. <laughs> so I guess that's my, my take on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I, I am one where, um, I'm going to pick on wellness concept for a minute. Like, 
um, we, we talk a lot about wellness and what to do for wellness and we have wellness conferences and I tell people, I go, coming to a once a year wellness conference does not mean you are well. You have to do something with what you're taught or you have to do something every day to be mm -hmm. well. Um, that concept, I apply to just about everything, um, including DEI. So um, attending and listening to a podcast on diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, or I know that the, the new acronym is JEDI, so justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, by attending or listening to a podcast or going to a presentation does not mean um, that, that you encompass or embrace uh, DEI. So what are some actions? What, what can we do as humans that walk together on this earth? What can we do to start changing the culture? Well, I think it comes with where you're at, right? Like acknowledging and accepting where you're at, which is is some of the hardest parts. Like um, my mom is a recovering addict. And so she and I often talk about the steps of recovery. And I swear to goodness, I, I think that many of those steps should be used towards like um, anti-racism perspectives and stuff because we're all recovering racists and we're all recovering sexists and transphobes and homophobes, you know what I mean? Like we are all moving through this, this period of having to acknowledge that these are parts of like, they're, they're part of our culture. It's, it's imbued in everything we do. You know, it's, it's systemic. That's, that's, I don't want to say the beauty of it, but that's why it holds and maintains its integrity is because it's systemic and it's imbued within every facet of our society from the way we communicate to how we work, to how we dress, to how we express our genders, to how we talk to one another, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think you have to acknowledge where you're at and really acknowledge um, what learning you have to do and what opportunities you have to learn, which is, is like taking a, a, a small bite of a very big cookie, because the issue is that, like you said, it's not something that you can just eat the cookie and you're done, you know, like you're not suddenly absolved. And, and I have to say that in almost every training I do is like, you know, you're in a safe place out active ally training you know, there's a whole four hours, but this does not absolve you of all of your issues that you have related to LGBTQIA populations. Like, in fact, this is just giving you some knowledge and some tools to be able to go, oh, that's something I need to learn more about. Oh, that's an opportunity I have. And so I think the first place is really just learning. Um, there are so many different free engagement opportunities, um, whether it's on LinkedIn, these awesome med ed uh, podcasts, um, which could be local and also could be broader at the, at the bigger level. Um, I think getting involved in community initiatives um, and bearing witness and listening and then listening more and then listening even more than that and more than you believe you're capable of um, to bear the witness to the stories and experiences of your, your community. You know, um, there are, again, many different organizations um, that you can volunteer as part of, that you could simply attend um, different events to gain experience and understanding. Um, if you have people who are close to you in your life without like tapping and over tapping them, especially if they're historically excluded um, and also not if they're your only black friend or your only gay friend or what have you, 
Um, you don't need to expect them to do the labor, but you can ask permission to be like, hey, I have some questions about these things. Can you help me break that down? Um, I think that those are starting points. Um, talking to other professionals in your career uh, field and in your same level or maybe above who maybe don't look like you um, to say like, what are some things that I could be doing better or different within my practice to really make sure that I am focused on my patients or on my students in a way that is, is progressive and transformative or recognize them. If you teach, pull your students, ask them, they'll tell you, like, what do you need to be successful? What are some roadblocks you've experienced in your, you know, in your academic career at this point? Um, what are things that, uh, what do you, what do you need to learn, right? Like what are tools that you need to learn? Cause we, we often forget their learning styles that are different. And that again, like that one size fits all doesn't fit all. Um, <clears throat> ask them their pronouns, ask them the name that they wish to go by, ask them if there are major holidays in a, you know, in a semester that you have them or that you're overseeing them that they might need different support. Again, we, we operate under a very, very, white, uh, heterosexual, patriarchal, Christian, ideological, you know, system. Like, so we don't even necessarily recognize that there are other holidays except for those that are on the Julian calendar. And, and for many folks, like I grew up a religious, so like holidays were very, very cultural. Like they weren't about faith ever. Like Easter, I didn't even really know what Easter was about until I was an adult. I just really, until I was 10, thought there was an Easter bunny. And that was it, you know, and then we just started getting candy. And one year I got a bike, like, you know, like they had nothing to do with Christianity at all for me. Um, but then there are other folks, you know, I remember Deb, one of our first conversations, we had talked about like, how would we coach um, a doctor who was scheduling individuals and, you know, two people come up to them who are both of the Jewish faith and request um, Yom Kippur off, but one person only requests a certain amount of days where the other person requests another amount of days. And in that moment, you're like, well, Joe over here just only requested this amount of days. So why do you need this many days? Mm -hmm. And we don't ask that about, you know, Easter or uh, Good Friday or uh, Christmas or, you know what I mean? Like, we don't ask those same questions about holidays that we're familiar with. And, and it's, terribly culturally and religiously insensitive and discriminatory to ask that because the ways in which we each again celebrate different holidays is very different you know some people um, may have different traditions that are part of their Jewish faith or their family system that calls for them to have four days that they need to dedicate to it whereas another um, might be um, my friend Anna she says that she is uh, culturally Jewish but not religiously Jewish and so she celebrates all the high holidays with her family but she doesn't practice Judaism like that's not necessarily within her religious faith but it's still important for her family unit that she's part of the high holidays and so it's like when we think about the different ways that we're working with individuals is really taking that pause and thinking like is this helpful is this harmful and how can I gain more knowledge about how to be more approachable or um uh proactive you know, more approachable in the moments that these things happen and or more approachable 
um, and proactive in the way that we're tending to these issues in the future. Because again, it's not like a one size fits all. So I can't just say like, well, everybody should go to a pride parade or everyone should go into a Black Lives Matter movement event or, you know, those are those are things you can do, but it's really about your everyday practice and thinking of if you have tiny humans, how do you talk to your tiny humans? You know, like um, if you always, if, if you have children who have, uh, you know, one is gendered male and one is gendered female and the male child you're always looking at and saying, oh, you're so strong and smart. And the girl child you're always looking at and saying, oh, you're so beautiful. Um, that those, even just the language that we're using around our children is already sculpting them into, into a system of expectations and rules, right? And that we're saying to our boy children, you can be strong and smart and to our girl children, you can be, you can be beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. That that is already polarizing. And so it's, how are we talking to our, our, our people, right? Like the people in our immediate circle, like I go back to what you do behind closed doors, what you do when nobody's looking, those are the things that matter most. So how are you as a human understanding how you move through the world in the way that you communicate with the people around you, um, with the way in which um, you regard other people? Like we all have thoughts that might not be great and we recognize them as not great. Um, I lived in St. Louis for two years <clears throat> and I remember after about a week of stopping at the same intersection, I noticed every single time I was stopped at this intersection at 7.30 in the morning, I would lock my doors. And, and then one day I like, I had the thought to myself, like, why am I doing that? Like, what is it about this intersection? And it was at a bus stop. It was pretty bustling. There were some folks who uh, were panhandling, like, and it was like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I need to sit with myself and think about this. Like, first of all, not a single person has ever approached my car in this whole week to make me feel unsafe. What is it about this? And for me, like, I think it was like a socioeconomic and race moment for me to recognize that I was having a moment that, of clarity and that I needed to reassess like my, my attitudes toward this particular population, right? Like that I was in no sense of peril or danger, but that I was feeling the triggers of my, my anti-black training or my, you know, anti-poor training and that I needed to recognize that, which isn't to say that there couldn't be safety issues anywhere, but like why at that intersection, why, you know, and so really breaking that down for myself and that's part of it, right? It's like acknowledging that these moments happen, um, apologizing when we make mistakes. If someone tells us their pronouns are they, them, and we chronically do not use them, why if you if someone has changed their name mid-semester and you keep calling them their old name why can't you change that like these are things that we do without a question without a second thought for anybody else you know we have friends who go by their middle names instead of their first names I had a boss whose name was Richard but he went by Chip like we have nicknames that we use for people all the time. Um, we have ways of referring to people all the time. And that's like one of the most basic forms of respect that we can offer one another is calling people by the name that they wish to be chosen, like to be called by, as well as their pronouns, which does nothing to us. And it, it harms us no, no percent. It, it is zero percent effort because we do this already. Um, and then, you know, just really thinking about what areas don't you know about? Like, what is it like 
if I said something to you today, like if I said, well, black women are the most uh, discriminated in health sectors. And you were like, I didn't know that. Go research it. Go look it up. I'm not making it up. And it's not my opinion. It's it's the the expert opinion of researchers, researchers and scholars that have long since come before me and have been doing this research and this work long before me. So so I think that it's it's really about you. You know, it's how you see this work fitting within your world. And I think that the more people that realize it is the work that we all should be also doing, and it doesn't mean you have to be me and change your career and do that full time. And it doesn't mean that you have to, like I said, be, you know, marching in a pride parade with a rainbow flag or, you know, down the streets with Black Lives Matter movement. But it is about understanding why those things exist and why they're necessary and and why why we need more people to support them, even if it doesn't mean being in them or, or bearing witness to them directly. Um, it's about changing the way that those folks then can access opportunities or experiences that aren't isolating or discriminatory or hate-based and unsafe. You know, it's about teaching our kids how to talk to one another and how to not replicate the, the same traditions and um, cultural values that we've been taught around anti-Blackness and homophobia and ableism and classism and, and so on and so forth. And I think the more that we each recognize our individual opportunities and responsibilities in it, I think the more we're able to create the communities that we really hope to, to thrive and aspire in for everybody. I think you're you're spot on that the the work really starts with self. Um, we can't change a culture or system unless we, you know, have changed ourselves first. And I, I love what you said, you know, start with where you are at home behind closed doors when nobody else is around. How are you talking? How are you using your words? How are you referring to others um, and and reflect there first? Yeah, it has to. I think it has to start with you, right? Like you are you are the only person that can count for your actions and your words. And and those are honestly, in my opinion, like as much as we like to all think that we can control everything in the world, those are the only things that we can truly control, right? Like every day when we show up, the only thing we can do is is what we can. And that's how we express ourselves, how we communicate, how we act, how we treat people. And, and if you know you're the only one that gets to determine that, then that's power, right? It's privilege and power. And so use that. Yeah. Oh, such a great talk. I, I love talking with you. Um, you always bring out so many more ideas and, and areas um, that we can provide additional faculty development. And so, in fact, on that note, I will see you again in March and we'll basically continue uh, this conversation. I look forward to it always. Dr. Deborah Young, my, my best friend on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, all. And uh, I look forward to talking to you all in March.